0: are in the midst of fall. Temperatures have dropped. Yay. Leaves are starting to drop. (laughs) Got to clean them up. And one of the things that happens in fall are carnivals and fairs. State fairs are happening all over the place. Carnivals are happening all over the place. And if you go to a carnival or fair, you're likely to run into one of these. Y'all know what that is? Y'all seen those boards before? where you got the board there, and it's got some caricature, some character there, and uh, you're supposed to put your face in the hole that's there, and, and you snap the picture, right? And why do we do that? Because it's silly. It's funny. Okay? The face doesn't match what's there on the board. The head doesn't match the body. Today, as we talk about the church, we have a reality in place where Jesus is the head and we are the body. And one of the things we have to ask ourselves, is it a reality where the head doesn't match the body? That is the subject of scorn and ridicule and laughter. Laughter. Or do we so connect with our head that it's a reality, it's a picture of vision, awesome, power, expression of who he is? Do we match him in our existence, in our desires, in our directions? The reality of the church is that we are very much an an aspect of doctrine, and that's something that's largely been ignored. The official term for it is called ecclesiology. But what has happened, especially over the last couple decades, in my opinion, is that ecclesiology has gone out the window. We no longer have a doctrine, a belief, a, a biblical basis for what we call the church. Church has become more of a time to get together and express ourselves or to be entertained or some other reality that falls far short of what God's word says about his church. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to be looking at a passage this morning that's that's well known to you. You've heard it many, many times before. But it's an important passage because it's one of only two times in all the Gospels where Jesus uses the word church. He uses it here in Matthew 16. He uses it again in Matthew 18 when he's talking about discipline. But we have to imagine that if Jesus uses the word church, if Jesus talks about the entity that we are, but that's probably something we ought to pay very careful and close attention to what does he desire for us what how does he describe us how does he understand his church so the setting is simply jesus is traveling around the area of galilee with his disciples And he's gone into the area that's known as the Decapolis. It's an area that is more Gentile than Jewish in nature. It's a part of the the Sea of Galilee that would be the what you'd call the the, the eastern coast, the eastern side of it. There were several towns in in this area that were, again, they were housed by Romans and Greeks and the like. So it was very different was a part that of uh, Judea that Jews really didn't like to travel to because it just stood out of how different it is. And so as they enter into this area, it's called Caesarea Philippi, Jesus begins with a question. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage today, as we look at how your Son has described us and defined us, God, I pray for conviction. I pray for clarity. I pray for comfort means and the measure that you would have for us to experience this word today. Lord, I pray that that would be felt, would be experienced by each person here, according to where they're at and according to what you want to do in their lives. I pray that you bless this time. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So what is the church? How does Jesus understand who we are and what we are to be and how we are to function and relate and live? Well, as was pointed out to me in Sunday school this morning, the church is not the building. The church is the people. And if it is the people, then there are certain things that we come to understand about ourselves as a part of that. The first thing we need to understand is that the church are those who are appropriately who appropriately relate to Jesus. Church is first and foremost a relational concept. And notice how the passage starts here. The passage starts here with what? A lot of wrong conceptions about who Jesus was, about who Jesus is. And things haven't changed. In the world that we live in today, people are confused about the identity of Jesus. Not because he hasn't been clear, not because we haven't been clear necessarily, but because it is human nature to twist and to distort and to mess up God's revelation of himself. It goes back to the garden where you had that whole conversation between the serpent and and, and Eve take place. You have the serpent obviously mischaracterizing God, saying he's somebody who can't be trusted, but you also have Eve in that that very conversation before the fall has taken place. She has mischaracterized God when she says what? He has told us we can eat some of the food but of this tree in the middle of the garden, where not to eat nor touch it. And there's two distortions of God's nature there in her response. The first is that He just said you can eat some of the food. That's not what He said at all. You go back earlier into the passage and and read what God's word, what what God's words were, what God's instructions were to the man and the woman there. And he says what. I want you to eat freely. I want you to eat abundantly. I want you to enjoy this environment. I've given it all for you to eat. Dig in. You people who are cooks, you you, you know the feeling. You you, you prepare this great meal, this big meal, this feast, this sumptuous reality. You place it in front of somebody and they say, "Mm, I'm really not that hungry. They don't really understand the relationship of what you've done to what they're experiencing. They they have distorted it. They have undervalued it. That's what Eve did. She undervalued the gift that God had given them right there in that moment. But the second way she distorted God is she said what? He said not to eat or touch. God never says anything about touching it. It's something, her or her and Adam or whomever, somewhere it was added. And it's turned God into this, again, this legalistic monster, essentially, who wants to do nothing but to squash or fun. It's setting up rules and barriers that God himself didn't set up And you may say, well, there's some wisdom in that. If you don't touch it, then you're not going to eat it. That's how our mind works. But when you make those sorts of conclusions, when you make those sorts of observations, then what? Who becomes the rule giver? Who becomes the authority in the situation? Not God any longer. It's you. You've become the authority. You've been the one who set up the rules. And the moment you displace God, even in, quote, the positive way of Protecting yourself, you have committed idolatry. And if you're willing to add to God's word, it becomes all the more easy to take away from it. That's who we are. We distort things. And so Jesus has become this guy who's not really about judgment or wrath. Direction at all. He's a friendly hippie. He says, it's all cool, dude. He's become a good guy. He's become a guy with a lot of good things to say. Instead of the sovereign lord of the universe who is the absolute king, Who deserves our obedience and our attention and our focus and our love, he's become something less. All the names here, these are all great people John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or the other prophets, they're all great people, but they're not God. They've turned Jesus into something less. And whenever a church or an individual within the church takes it upon themselves to lessen God, then they are not being the church because they are not appropriately relating to the one who is their head. Jesus puts it forward here, makes it very clear here what the crux of the matter is. Who do you say I am? Yeah, those people are going to get it wrong. They don't have a relationship. When I am worried about how I've presented myself in a situation or how I have communicated, related to some situation or some circumstance, maybe I've heard from somebody that I'm unapproachable or something like that. I have to take into account that those people probably don't know me. They don't understand me. They've never seen the goofy side of Tim. And so they misrepresent me. They misunderstand me. Why? Again, for the simple reason that they don't know me. The people who know me. Know who I am. And the same is true with Jesus. The people who are out there, who are out there in the world, who are mischaracterizing, they're mischaracterizing because they don't know Him. They haven't spent time with Him, they haven't seen His judgment, and they really haven't seen His grace. They've turned it into a cheap grace that means nothing, that has no cost, that has no no consequences, that is just him saying, hey, let's just love everybody. Let's just ignore sin. Again, understand this. If you understand one thing, understand this. Grace is amazing because of how dreadful sin is. Grace is not a Divine shrug. Oh, well, what are you going to do? People will be people. That's not grace. Grace is saying, I see that sin. That sin is a reproach to me. That sin is a rebellion against me. That sin is a rejection of all that I am as God. I'm going to love you anyway. And I'm going to change that perception, that perspective, that outlook, and make it into something new. That's grace. So who do you say that Jesus is? And then Jesus does what? He speaks a beatitude. Blessed are you, Simon. We all know the beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount. What are they? A beatitude is a blessing that's pronounced because of something somebody has done or something somebody will do. There is a connection between the blessing and the activity. And it's trying to teach and instruct a way of life, a way of thinking, a way of approaching reality. It's a call to a certain behavior. And so when Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, he's not simply saying that for the sake of Simon. He's doing what? He's presenting a truth. He's presenting a reality. He's presenting an outlook for all of us to respond to, for all of us to hold to. And what is that reality? That Christ is the Son of the living God. That's the Jesus we what? We relate to. All of those are relational terms. The heart of it is what? The living God. The reality of the situation is as they're standing there in Caesarea Philippi, known to the Romans as Peneus or Banias. Why was it called that? Because it was named after the Roman god Pan. Greek god Pan, the half goat, half man. That was what the name of the city was. And it was a hub of paganism. And as they walked into the city, there would have been idols everywhere. Up on the cliffside, in the streets, there were several temples there. And they're standing there in the midst of this pagan place looking at all these gods who are what? Not alive. Not living. They're stone. They're marble. They're bronze. Our God is not made of marble or bronze or stone or even our imagination. Our God is a living God. He walked among us. He talks with us. He has talked to us in his word. We have a relationship with him. Why is Christianity so different than all the other religions? Because all the other religions are chasing Emptiness. They're chasing their imagination. They're chasing constructions of their own doing, whereas we are being chased by a God who loves us, who is resolved to relate to us and walk with us. It says here that Jesus is the Son of that living God. And remember, as we've talked about before, in the Hebrew mindset, in Hebrew language, to say something is the son of is to say that by their nature, that's what they are. When Peter says that Jesus is the son of the living God, he's not simply saying you are descended from him or you're an offshoot of him or anything like that. He's saying you yourself are the living God. That's what the phrase would have meant in their language, in, the, in their idioms, and their ways of thinking. You are the living God, who is also what? The Messiah, the Christ, the one who has come, who is anointed to lead and to direct and to guide and to bring people into a closer relationship with the living God. So that's the heart of the church. We are those who appropriately relate to Jesus. And in verse 18, we're given first mention of the church here. And the word behind it is the word ekklesia, where we get ecclesiology. And what does that word ekklesia mean in the Greek? It means assembly. So the church is an assembly of people that exist by the power of God. When William Tyndale was translating the Bible into English under threat of death from the king of England for doing something so blasphemous as rendering the word in the common tongue. Whenever he came upon the word ecclesia here in Matthew or Paul's writings later. He didn't render it church. He rendered it assembly. And the simple reason for that was that the church of that day had come to mean something completely different than what Jesus and God's word meant by the church. It had become an entity that did not know God. It had become an entity that was self-serving and power-hungry instead of an entity that was Driven by the revelation, the reflection, the re- the the relationship that one is to have with God. What does Jesus say about this church? He says, "I will build it." He doesn't say you will build it, Peter. He doesn't say you, disciples, will build it. He doesn't say people who follow after you will build a church. He says I will build my church. Jesus is the foundation. We exist because of his presence. We exist because of his power. Gregory Elder tells a story that he grew up on the Atlantic coast, and growing up on the Atlantic coast, one of his passions was to build sand castles. He loved to build them. And he got quite good at them. He, in fact, he, he loved to build whole cities out of sand. And inevitably, especially certain, during certain times of year, there would be bullies who would come through and they would smash his castles, they'd smash his construction. so he developed an idea, he decided that with the next building he built, he was going to put a big stone in the middle of it and build a sandcastle around it. Sure enough, puts a stone in, starts to build a sandcastle, beautiful creation as always, and here come the bullies. He just steps back out of the way and lets them kick away. Since they're on the beach, they're what? They're barefooted. They kick those stones. And they cried out in pain. They cried out in agony over the reality of kicking something harder than they imagined it being. Many people see the church in grave peril from a variety of dangers, secularism, politics, heresies, just plain old sin. They forget that the church is built upon a rock. And it's that rock that is our power, it's that rock that is our foundation, it's that rock that we hold on to. The rock of our relationship. With Jesus Christ. And I know there's a, all sorts of struggles here in terms of who exactly Jesus means when he says on this rock. Since he's just called Peter Rock, that's an obvious connection. Some think it's the confession itself, some think it's Jesus. I don't know that we have to pick any one of those because they're all intertwined. Peter's the one who said it. Peter would be an instrumental uh, individual in leading the church in the days to come. He becomes what? The type for every Christian member. His confession is at the heart of the relationship. And then, of course, Jesus is what? The focus of the confession. There's no reason to separate those different views there. Jesus, I believe, was purposely ambiguous because he wants us to understand that as a church, we are part of that work. Our confession is part of that connection, and he is the one that holds us all together. If we are going to survive as an individual church, if we are going to be all that we need to be, we have to build our foundation on the power of God. Not our own plans, not our own programs, not our own manipulations and workings and perspectives on what God has said, on what God has done, and on what God continues to do. That has to be who we are if we are accurately going to call ourselves a church. And this goes on to the second part of Jesus' statement there in verse 18 where he reveals that the church is an assembly that persists by the power of God. So we exist, we come into being by our relationship to Christ, but we persist, we exist. He says what? The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I have a picture here of Caesarea Philippi. I've mentioned this before, this is a close-up picture of one section of a cliff. Just imagine a, a big cliff side. You can see the little niches there. Those niches go back to the time of Jesus. And in each one of those niches in the time of Jesus, there would have been a God that was placed there for worship and adoration. you also notice the big hole. The big hole is a cave. It's been caved in since the time of Christ, but back in those days, it was a cave that went very far back into it, and at the the face of that cave was a temple. And the reason that temple was placed there, and the reason that cave was important, was because the Greeks, the, the, the Gentiles of that area, believed that that was one of the entrances to Hades. They believed this was one of the places where you could gain access to the underworld. So that's why this site became so significant. So when Jesus says the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it," he's literally pointing at something that they would have understood as the gates of Hades. He didn't just pull this out of the air. But what is he saying with that statement? Now, part of our our shaping of our understanding of what Jesus is saying here has been shaped by an unfortunate translation. Because some of our translations have rendered the word here, hell. And while there is a relationship there, you need to understand that Jesus purposely used the terms he used to express different truths. There is a difference between Gehenna and Hades, at least in terms of the emphasis that it's expressing. The emphasis of Gehenna is what? It's punishment. It's the burning. It's the fire that is never quenched. It's what we would traditionally think of in terms of hell. But the emphasis of Hades isn't that. The emphasis of Hades is death. And what is humanity's biggest foe? Throughout the scriptures, the biggest foe of humanity is death. And so what Jesus is saying here is, is that the church, as it relates, as it functions, as it operates, it will persist, it will exist, it will go on. Why? Because death itself cannot overcome it. He's leaning into where he's about to go and what he talks about is his death. He's leaning into the resurrection, something we talked about last week, that our ultimate goal, our ultimate hope, our ultimate journey is embedded in the truth of the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, and our future resurrection. Why is that so significant? Because it communicates God's ultimate power and victory over death. Think of the biggest, baddest, most terrifying reality you can think of and Jesus says it ain't nothing compared to God's power. And we as a church get so much into into squabbles and worries and concerns and other things that we fail to see the power that's available to us. We fail to understand the beauty that God had. When I hear people badmouth the church, and let's face it, the church has often done things that deserve bad-mouthing. But when I hear people badmouth the church, I think to myself, how short-sighted is that? Because the church is something created by God, and it will, like all of creation that he has, it will be beautiful because it's his. And you may not see it in all its beauty. You may not see it in all its perfection now, but someday we will. And That's what we work toward. That's what we live for. That's what we operate under. Back in the late 19th century, there was going to be an international exposition. And because of this great... Exposition, this great coming together of people from all over the world. The city that was hosting it commissioned a building, a tower. The architect started planning and, and organizing and directing and, and coming up with a concept and an idea. And they went to work at it. And as it's being constructed and as it's being built and as the sketches of it are coming out, other architects and other artists and, and individuals in the town were talking about how grotesque and monstrous and evil it was. And there were lots of people who wished to destroy it. They wanted it tore down before the exposition, before all the people could see it, before all the people would come and and, and see this this monstrosity that was polluting the views of their beautiful town. We know this tower today as the Eiffel Tower. When it was built, everybody hated it. They wanted it tore down. They saw it as monstrous. They saw it as less than. But Eiffel had a plan and a vision. He carried it out. And today, you can't think of Paris without thinking of the Eiffel Tower. Jesus has a plan for the church. And he's building it. Sometimes the way it looks and sometimes the way it's functioning, it's not very beautiful. It's not what it should be. Church is the instrument, or an instrument, I should say, by which people can know God. And we need to be about the business of living in such a way, of acting in such a way, of functioning in such a way, that when people see the church, they see him. We will persist, we will exist, we will grow as we dwell in, live in, walk in, the power of God. And though we might be misunderstood at times, and though we may not be all that we're supposed to be at times, we are headed toward a beautiful destiny. Because why? Because our architect, our head, our creator, knows the structure and has a platform. third thing Jesus says about the church here is that it is an assembly that communicates the gospel. Verse 19, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind, you bound. Whatever you loose, will be loose. That's not a benefit. That's a responsibility. Jesus here is not saying to Peter, to the disciples, to us, I'm going to give you this huge benefit. You get the keys. It's a responsibility. You have a task. Share the gospel. Communicate the truth. Paul would say it a different way later on. How can they know unless someone speaks? How beautiful are the feet of those who what? Who bring the gospel. And in Matthew 18, 18, just in case you're one of those who think, well, he's saying this to Peter, not to everybody else. Matthew 18, 18, he expands this promise. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed on heaven. He's talking to everybody there. So his words are not just centered on Peter here. This is a wider expression. It is our responsibility to share the gospel, to share the truth, to communicate who God is. How do we do that? We do that with the last truth in this passage, and that is that the church is an assembly of people called to die to themselves. Notice how Matthew wraps this up. Verse 20, then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Why? There's lots of reasons. There's there's personal reasons that Jesus had. There's uh, ministry reasons that Jesus had. But I think at least one of the reasons that Jesus had was that he didn't want this to become about the disciples. A new human tendency. The disciples are out there saying, We got the Messiah over here. What is their mindset? What is their intention? We see them struggle with it throughout the Gospels. We're his lieutenants. What did James and John ask through their mom? I want to sit on your right hand. I want to sit, the other one of us to sit on your left. When you enter your kingdom, That's the positions we want. That's our tendency. So Jesus' instructions here were at least in part to what? Die to your desires about the kingdom. Die to your mindsets about what the kingdom's about. And let me direct this journey. One of the unfortunate realities of the world that we live in here in the States is that the church has become just another institution among many in our culture instead of the distinctive God-ordained reality that it was intended. It's become a, a comfortable place that we come or don't come as we feel led. I don't feel like going to church today. Well, then don't go. And we're all okay with that. When Christ ordered us to come together, when his word instructed us to come together, we become an institution, an entity a people who want the benefits and blessings without the cost. Jesus said, if you would follow me, what? Count the cost of building that tower, of building that reality, of building that life. It comes at an expense. But we become a people who... Don't want any cost. And as John Henry Jowett said, ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. Christ has called us to put our desires, our plans, our likes and dislikes, our wants and wishes to the side and to listen to his leadership, his calling, his instruction. Not mine. His. And we do that by digging into his word, by praying to him on a regular basis, by listening to his instruction, by simply relating to him, coming to understand better more and more each day. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for each person here. God, I pray that, Lord, that you've spoken in ways well beyond my capacity here this morning. Lord, I pray firstly, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, doesn't have a relationship with you, that you would draw them, that you have been drawing them, that they would respond in faith. They would experience that relationship, that life. That goodness, that you are, God. I also pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here that you would help us to make you our priority—not ourselves, not our programs, not our plans, not even this church. You, and so doing, that this church would become what's intended to be a reflection. A body that matches the head. Lord use this time for your purposes for your glory in Christ's name.